On our last recent missionary trip uh, over to Panama, we had a little downtime one noon hour where we had a kind of a rather intense storm come through. So we're all kind of gathered underneath this tarp, and it's lasting a while. And uh, Judy Zigley came up with the idea that we're going to play a game. The game is you have to tell three things about yourself, but one of them is a lie. So um, those, you know, those that were the best at this game were those that uh, were able to practice deception, where it was very close to being very believable. You know, what they, all things they said could be very believable. As an example, if I stated, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm in Manitowoc County, number one. I broke my leg two times in my life. Or three, I'm the fifth of 55 sons. You'd probably be able to figure out which is the lie, right? But if I said, number one, I played basketball for UW-Manitowoc. Number two, I have a tattoo of Lambeau Field on the back of my left shoulder. Or number three, I rode my bike across the U.S., across the country. Who thinks number one is the lie? Number two? Number three? Now, I think you, I guess you know me better than I thought. Yeah, um, number two is the lie. There's no, no tattoo on my back. So, <clears throat> normally if Paul was here, I'd transition into a comment about the lions there, but since he's not, and I, <laughs> and I promised not to do that the next time I was up here, I'll, I'll skip that part. See, the best counterfeit or the best deceptions are there's something that can be believed. There's something that actually looks somewhat like the truth. And Satan has used this many times to attack, to attack God's word and to attack his, his people. There's nothing he desires more than to destroy confidence in God and in God's word. And one of his best methods of deception is what I'm going to describe or call here as the, the cuckoo bird deception. And you might say, what in the world is that? Well, the cuckoo bird is what's known as a, breed, a, a brood parasite in that they trick other birds into raising their young. See, the, the, the mama cuckoo, she'll, she'll fly in when a nest is vacant. She'll push out one of the other eggs, lay an egg, all in as little as 10 seconds and be gone. And one of their favorite victims is the reed warbler. Well, the unsuspecting... And apparently they do that up to 50 times in a breeding season. It's pretty incredible. And, you know, the unsuspecting reed warblers then, they'll incubate, feed, and raise that imposter all at the expense of their own young. And since the cuckoo chick usually hatches first, it'll kind of push the other eggs out of the nest so it gets all the attention and all the food. And um, pretty soon that unsuspecting pair of reed warblers, they're working frantically to feed that cuckoo chick, which in a short time will be three times their size. Well, many people don't realize it, but Satan has always tried to lay eggs of deception in the church. Unfortunately, sometimes they get hatched, they get adapted, fed, and become bigger than life. His desire is to infiltrate the saints by laying eggs of deception, and this has always been one of his most effective tactics. Example, at the time of Christ, There were rules and traditions regarding ceremonial purification, and they were vigorously enforced. These rules had become so numerous that often an entire lifetime would be taken and you still wouldn't be able to learn them all. Uh, While people would be occupied in trying to learn those rules, 
They would be distracted and their attention would be turned away from the great principles of God's law. In Matthew 15, 1 through 6, we have the story here of the scribes and the Pharisees and how they were attacking the disciples for not washing their hands and transgressing the traditions of the elders. Jesus responds in verse 3, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God? Because of your tradition. See, the Pharisees, they had set aside the fifth commandment about honoring their parents, but they were so exact in carrying out the traditions of men. Christ repeats the words of Isaiah in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, where he says, Hypocrites, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. See, Christ wants us to worship him and love him here, not just from our lips. And the Pharisees of all people should have known that. They should have known that the 613 laws of Moses were harmonious and not contradictory, but by insisting and following the traditions of the elders, they were invalidating the word of God. Satan's scheme then, as now, is not necessary to bring about change suddenly. He's okay if he can do it it gradually, and he does this by laying his eggs of deception. But what about the Christian church today? Have there been eggs of deception that have been laid in the Christian church? Well, I will listen, you know, driving into WRVM, the Christian station uh, from uh, Searing, or driving home, or maybe sometime a little later in the day. And usually at some point there's a reference, oftentimes regarding the weather, and it says, and tomorrow on the Lord's Day. You know, just a simple step, just a simple misapplication of Revelation 110, where John states, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. But just how does that make Sunday the Lord's Day? I mean, if Jesus states in Mark 3.28 that he is Lord of the Sabbath, and thus, by claiming that, that he created the Sabbath, would not the Lord's Day be Saturday and not Sunday? I mean, just a simple egg that has gotten hatched, and it's, it's made people validate the belief that Sunday is the day they should worship on. Another one, how is it so many churches teach once saved, always saved, when that is not really found in the Bible? This is really Satan's way of just trying to pollute the biblical references about being saved by grace. It's so numerous in the Bible that he really can't, he really can't deny it, so he, he's got to twist it. I mean, if we look at Psalm 85.6, David is asking God to revive us again as God's people had drifted away and they needed to be revived. In John 15, 1 through 6, Jesus stated that he is the true vine and any branch that does not bear fruit, God the vine dresser will take away. The secret there is to continue abiding because when a branch is separated from its, its vine, its true source of life, it'll soon die. Hebrews 3.14 tells us, for we are partakers of Christ." If we hold to the beginning, what is the key there? Holding steadfast. Second Timothy 2.12, it tells us, If we endure, we shall reign with him. And Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. Now, if you just think of it, there are actually hundreds of Bible warnings against apostasy. Would they not all be useless if it were impossible to experience that? 
And if it were true that once saved, thou was saved, would make you eternally secure, surely the devil would know that. And he wouldn't waste his time on Christians, on those who are saved, because it would be impossible to cause them to be lost. Has he stopped trying to kick you? I know he sure hasn't stopped trying to kick me. How is it that when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water? Matthew 3.16, yet so often the practice of sprinkling water on infants as baptism is used. Now this one tends to be very comforting to people, both for the insurance of the baby and the belief that has drifted in that because of that practice, you are saved forever. But does not Acts 2.38 state, Repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Do we not need then to believe, repent, be right individual on this topic? And I ask the question, if someone is baptized by sprinkling as an infant and has absolutely no relationship with Jesus, will they go to heaven? After a brief silence, the response was, yes. Yes, they will. Now, this is a very intelligent person, but unfortunately, they're trapped in certain traditions. But if we look at the probably the one Bible verse that just about everybody knows, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, is it believeth in him, or is it had water sprinkled on their head? You know, I, I was into that concept as well when I was a Lutheran. I just, you know, some child would be baptized, and I, I thought, yeah, another one got away from you, Satan. I can just think, think, thinking now he's just sitting there smiling and thinking, yeah, that's what you think, buddy. See, can you see the dangers, how this theory, how this simple act of deception was saved, how, how dangerous that can actually become? Has there been an egg that's been planted in churches? Why is it that so many churches insist the dead go to heaven upon death when it contradicts what they say each and every week when they recite the Apostles' Creed? Part of the Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, begotten of the Father, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now right there, if the dead are already in heaven, just which dead is he coming to judge? Another egg that, well, that egg was planted way in the very beginning, but that one is really, really hatched. Why is it that so many Christians insist the Ten Commandments were done away with when the Old Covenant was abolished, yet they fight so hard to keep them displayed in public places? First of all, I guess we could start off saying, well, what exactly is a covenant? A covenant, I better do this. I'm sick of flipping that page back and forth. A covenant is simply an agreement between two people or two groups. Hebrews 8 tells us that the old covenant was faulty, and Hebrews 8.13 says that's why it vanished away. So could the Ten Commandments have been part of that covenant? I mean, did they vanish away? One of the best stories I've heard to explain this issue, about the Old and New Covenant and what exactly was in there, involves former Amazing Facts speaker Joe Cruz. And Elder Cruz was presenting a seminar 
And at the conclusion one night, his path, as he stepped off the platform, his path was blocked by three young men. And one of them addressed him in a rather loud voice, Brother Joe, we are disappointed that you put us back under the old covenant by preaching on the seventh-day Sabbath. Do you not realize that we are living under the new covenant and should be keeping Sunday instead of Saturday? A group was now gathering in front of him to hear his response, and it was obvious that Elder Cruz would need to take some time and address this issue. As, expect, as he expected, those three young men were seminary students at the local Bible college. Normally, Elder Cruz did not like to handle situations that way, but since they had his path blocked, and since a big crowd had formed around him, he felt he had no choice. Elder Cruz started off by saying that they must have studied this topic very thoroughly to be so passionate about it. Then he asked them a series of questions. Well, just when was the Old Covenant instituted? At Mount Sinai was the correct answer. And how was it ratified? By the sprinkling of the blood of an ox, correct again. Elder Cruz complimented on their responses, and next he asked them, well, when, what, how was the New Covenant ratified? By the blood of Jesus came the correct answer. Commending the young men on their scriptural knowledge, Elder Cruz now asked them to read two Bible verses, two, and I will read those to you. Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. And um, they go, For where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity, be the death of the tester. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the tester lives. And the other one, Galatians 3.15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is, so, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Well, the young men read those verses, and they said, Yes, they eagerly agreed, that they agreed with that. The new covenant did not go in effect until after the death of Jesus. And nothing could be added or taken away from it once it was ratified on the cross. Elder Cruz stated, well, now you must answer two more questions. Number one, when did Sunday keeping begin? At that moment, there was shocked silence as the young men, they looked at each other and they looked down at their feet. Elder Cruz was prodding them. You have, certainly you have known all the other answers. Certainly you can answer this question for me. One of them finally spoke up and said, We keep Sunday in honor of the resurrection. Elder Cruz responded then with one final question. How could Sunday be part of the new covenant, since nothing could be added after Christ's death? The three young men, they shuffled their feet. They looked at each other, and one of them stated, we will study this issue and get back to you. And they fled out the door, never to return. I wonder what happened to those three young men. One of the very strongest reasons for rejecting Sunday worship is that it was not included in the New Covenant since it was not ratified at the death of Jesus. If had Jesus wanted Sunday keeping, he would have added it the same way he did the Last Supper. Well, today we've looked at it a few ways that Satan has laid some eggs of deception into the Christian church that have been incubated, that have been hatched, they've been raised by many in the Christian church. Now, my intent here, I mean, is it wrong to talk about errors? First off, if I said anything that has stepped on any toes, 
I want to apologize. That was not my intent. My goal is not necessarily to not defend anybody, maybe to make you think. And, and secondly, if you leave here with the thought that the message was about trying to bash other doctrines, then I have failed in my intent. But as far as it is wrong, well, our message is the three angels, got, three angels gospel, the three angels message, and it's our job to spread that. Now, it's not just the first angel, it's the three angels message, but we have to do it out of love in everything that we do. And is it loving to withhold the truth from somebody? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 578. Those who have too little courage to reprove wrong or who, through indolence or lack of interest, make no earnest effort to purify their family or the church of God are held accountable for the evil that may result from their lack of duty. Our scripture states today that we need to run the race with endurance that is set before us. Our race is the undiluted, pure, three angels' message as found in Revelation 4, 16, 6 through 10. That message is so important that it is being represented by being proclaimed by holy angels flying in the midst of heaven. Is that a message that everyone needs to hear? Unfortunately, with so many different doctrines out there, many are confused and they do not know what is right. They end up refusing God's message and staying where they are comfortable. Yes, errors of popular theology have driven many to skepticism. In order to present our message, we need to avoid distractions. We need to remain focused. We need to keep the eggs of deception out of this church and out of our lives. Our church is being shaken, and there will be an even greater shaking happening in the future. From evangelism, Ellen, writes, Ellen White writes, In the absence of persecution, there have drifted into the ranks men who appear sound in their Christianity, but who, if persecution should arise, will go out from us. Is it important to stay focused, to avoid eggs of deception that lead people astray? We need to be on guard so that we don't lose our focus, so that we don't become slothful, so that we don't become lukewarm like the Laodicean church. I have a story about a ship here, and then I will close this up. It's about a ship called the Herald of the Free Enterprise. Now, the Herald was a magnificent ship that ferried passengers and vehicles across the English Channel. It was, it was a first-class ship. It had all the luxuries. At 433 feet long, she could weather almost any storm. But on the night of March 6, 1987, the passengers experienced a terrifying surprise. 193 men, women, and children lost their lives in a matter of seconds. Everything for the ship's preparation that to cross from Belgium to England went very routinely that evening. The crew was very experienced, and the hundreds of vehicles and passengers came aboard quickly through the massive steel doors in the bow of the ship. But at 7.05, as the Herald was backing out into the calm sea, something was drastically wrong. The crew member assigned to close the massive doors was not at his post, but was sleeping in his bed, having missed the call to appear at his workstation. Since the captain was backing the ship out, he did not notice the open door, and by the time the ship swung around, it was in total darkness. At 7.20, the Herald accelerated into the main shipping channel. 
The water was pouring into the bow at the rate of 200 tons per minute. As the vehicle deck was flooding, most of the passengers were either sitting in the restaurant, shopping, or relaxing in the lounge. Everyone felt quite warm and safe. At 7.27, the Herald began to roll over on its side. She righted herself briefly, then rolled completely onto its side, and seawater rushed into the windows. The ship began to sink. What happened so quickly that night to the Herald was the worst British peacetime maritime disaster since 1919. At one moment, the passengers were eating sandwiches and buying souvenirs, and the next, they were dealing with icy seawater. How could anybody be prepared for that? Well, there are many people unprepared for the end times, both here in our church. In one of Ellen White's writings, she says, one in 20 on the church roll are prepared for the end. One in 20. I sure hope she was writing about her time specifically. People both here in the church and people outside of the church. It may be that they are hanging on to deceptions or they simply have a slothful attitude. Our race here, the race we need to run, is we need to try and change that. In order to run our race, we need to train. Just like Olympians train for their events, we need to train as well. There are many things we can do, from Bible study, prayer, memorizing scripture. All of these can help us train. In closing here today, my hope is that you will run the race that is set before you, that you'll do the necessary training to stay focused, to keep the eggs of deception out of your lives and out of this church. So when others see you, they will see the hope that is in you, and they will want that hope. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the blessings you've given us, Lord, and thank you for the responsibility of giving the three angels' message to this community. Lord, we ask for the strength to carry out this message message, so that we may stay focused, that we may keep the eggs of deception out of our lives in this church, that we may turn our eyes to you, Lord. Give us the strength and courage that we need to run this race that is set before us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.